Well, I know that most of us came in this morning and we picked up our bulletin. You started to look through it as you were getting seated. And what I don't know is when you opened your bulletin and saw the passage for this week's sermon, if you said, all right, Psalm 119. Or if it was, oh man, Psalm 119. <laughs> now, I hope you had the prior reaction. But even if you didn't, I appreciate, I appreciate you sticking it out with me this morning here. So if we would, please put aside any preconceptions and predilections for the Psalms. Ask God to show you what he has in these verses that will enrich your life and your relationship with him this morning. So please uh, stand with me. Uh, turn to Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. Uh, page uh, 902 in your pew Bibles. Well, look, God our Father, maker of heaven and earth, we've worshipped you in song and in our offerings. And as we prepare now to worship you in the study of your word, help us to come to it with hearts eager to know more about you, about ourselves, and about how you have called us to live during our walk on this earth. Our passage this week challenges us. Work within us to embrace the challenges we have in living the life you've called us to, understanding that we don't have the power within us to live as you have called us to live, but that in you we have the strength to be more than conquerors. Through this time together in your word, help us to better know what we need to do, what we need to know, and what we need to be, to be the ones that you have called us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Okay, Psalm 119, 97 to 104, I'll be reading from the ESV, it's Mostly the same uh, from what your pew Bibles will have. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Please be seated. Now, if I uh, unintentionally confused anyone with the sermon title this week, it was intended to be a play on word. Mums the word has for many years uh, been an English idiom that means to be quiet about something to keep something a secret. It's a long history going back to the 1300s. It got popularized by Shakespeare. But we aren't supposed to be quiet about God's word. So to me, it's an interesting contrast between mums the word and what we see here in Psalm 119, mem, mems the word. This section of the psalm proclaims the wonders of God's word and challenges us to demonstrate it as we live our lives. Of course, the world wants us to keep quiet about our faith. Uh, faith in God that the world accepts is really no faith because it doesn't change the way a person lives and thinks. It's never seen. It's not heard. But the Bible teaches us that our faith is a transforming faith. And having been transformed, we are to share our faith and live it out in ways that are clear and unmistakable. Now, you might remember that Psalm 119 is organized according to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That word alphabet itself comes down to us from ancient Hebrew and other early Semitic languages like Phoenician and Arabic. If you look at the first two sections of Psalm 119, you find that they're headed up by the Hebrew letters Aleph and Beth, which became Greek letters Alpha and Beta. Alpha, Bet. That's where we get our word alphabet from. And the common theme throughout Psalm 119 is walking in the law of the Lord. It's divided into 22 sections, each headed up by one of the consonants of the Hebrew alphabet, 
with each section consisting of eight verses, which also incidentally start with that consonant in the, in the original Hebrew. And like most of you, I'm not educated in ancient Hebrew myself, but as I was researching the passage, I was surprised by an interesting coincidence. The letter uh, for M in Hebrew, Mem, is kind of like a square, and it happens to be the same thing in the Korean language. It makes me wonder whether King Sojong that invented the alphabet of the Korean language in the 1400s just stumbled across the same thing, or if maybe his scholars had some uh, ancient Semitic experts in his staff that came up with the same letter for both alphabets. Just one of those things. But in Hebrew, consonants pulled double duty. They were letters, but they also had a numerical value associated with them, and the value associated with Mem was 40, and which you know is a very significant number uh, that we find in the Bible. It reminds us of the 40 days and nights of rain when God destroyed the earth with water in Genesis 7, and Noah waiting 40 days before opening up one of the windows on the ark afterwards. It reminds us of Moses and the 40 years he spent in the desert tending flocks after murdering the Egyptian, and also the 40 days he spent on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, and then again the 40 days he spent interceding for Israel when they sinned with the golden calf. And when Israel reached the promised land, their spies took 40 days to spy out the land and, of course, then wandered in the desert for 40 years before God allowed them to enter it. In Judges, we learn that Israel served the Philistines for 40 years before God provided deliverance through Samson. And later, Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days before, God put an end to, for, before David put an end to it through God's power. Elijah also traveled for 40 days to get away from Jezebel's vengeance after calling down fire at Mount Horeb overlooking the plains of Armageddon. So 40 is a number that arises in the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jonah and in the New Testament. Jesus is, of course, tempted for 40 days. There are 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. Many of the times where we see the number 40 show up in the Bible concern times of trial, but not always. And you'll recall that last week marked a turning point in Psalm 119. For three stanzas, the psalm took us deeper and deeper into trials and tribulations. But in last week's passage, this changed. And in response to God's salvation, the psalmist moves forward and upward in praise. And the mem section continues this direction, kind of like a drowning man finding himself back on solid ground. This section continues to affirm that our only solid ground, our firm foundation, is found in the word of God. And just as the number 40 often gets associated with the time of leaning on God's strength in times of trial... It seems reasonable that the psalmist was mindful of the blessings of God's words when faced with challenges in his walk with God and in his life. But having weathered the crisis, the psalmist doesn't forget God, nor does he forget what God has done for him. Instead, we see this section declare, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. For me, at least, this is one of the first challenges I find in the passage, right there at the beginning. I find it a challenge because... One of those inconvenient truths we find in life is that sometimes we seek God most earnestly when things are going terrible, when everything in our lives is crashing down around our ears. In desperation, we reach out for God. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that tendency to seek out God and uh, lean on him in bad times. But what is unfortunate is our tendency to forget about God when the crisis passes. But notice that in verse 97, the psalmist hasn't forgotten God. Now that things have taken a turn for the better, he remembers what God has done and is more attached and focused on God than ever. And that's something I know I need to take to heart. In your typical day, how often do you consider God and his word? 
He calls us to an intimate relationship. In our sinful, selfish nature, we are used to the idea of loving something because it is attractive to us. But God's love doesn't demand attraction. God chose us while we were enemies lost in sin. We were not at all attractive to God. Yet, in return for God's unconditional love, we're often tempted to tell God, God, if you do this for me, if your way proves attractive, then, then I will give you my life, then I will give you my devotion. The Bible tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind. That isn't a command in the Bible because it comes naturally to us. I find that God rarely commands me to do something that comes naturally. Those that have not received the gifts of salvation love sin unconditionally. That is what comes naturally. No matter how bad sin treats them, no matter where it leads, they pursue it. But our love of God is to be the same. Only our love of God is sanctified by the object of its affection, while love of sin is cursed by the object of its affection. So there's a good reason that loving God comes first in this passage and is repeated so many times in this psalm. Our unison reading calls us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And without a love of God and his word, this would sound downright unreasonable and foolish. We're called to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, not conformed to this world. And only after we are transformed by the renewal of our mind by God's spirit can we be conformed to Christ in obedience to and love of God's word. We have a tendency to want to know everything first. But Romans 12, 1-2 is clear that we have to be transformed in our thinking to be conformed to Christ. And only then will we be informed about God's will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to be transformed, to do what conforms to Christ, to know the will of God. Love of God affects who we are, what we do, and how we interpret the world around us, what we know. Now the scriptures teach us not to be double-minded. We have to be wholly committed to God. Our first motivation as Christians is to seek God's power to love him, to bring him glory. And the world is great at distracting us. The average American is reported to check their cell phone 46 times a day. From waking to sleeping, they check that screen every 20 minutes. Here's a practical idea. Maybe you should put this verse as the splash screen on your phone so you're reminded to love God and meditate on his word throughout your day. Now, you may, maybe you've heard the saying, never let the tyranny of the urgent distract your attention from the things that are important. But I've always found that an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do. Meditating on the word of God keeps us close to God and helps keep our affections with God. So expect opposition and develop strategies for overcoming the distractions of life through reliance on God's power in his word. And just as the things of this world demand our time and energy, so does the meditation of God's word. We can get so busy doing things, even Christian things, that we lose sight of the objective of maintaining our love of God. I often forget that it's not the work I do that makes the biggest difference, but the work that God is doing in me. Keeping our affections pure is critical in living life with Christ as our focus. And scripture helps us with an objective measure of how we are doing in our love of God. Because if our love of God is on target, scripture tells us it will be revealed in our love of others. If we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible teaches us then the love of God is not within us. Now, do we love God because we meditate on God's word? 
or do we meditate on God's word because we love God? As for me, my view is that both are functions of each other. If I ignore God's word, I know it won't be long before the God I claim to love isn't the one true God revealed in his word. And if I let my love of God grow cold, I'm unlikely to meditate on his word. And if I do, it becomes an academic exercise. It may bring knowledge, but it fails to bring spiritual fruit. It's been mentioned before that the Psalms, and Psalm 119 particularly, contains several different ways of referring to God's word. And in these eight verses, you find almost all of them. I'm going to run through them with you briefly, so you can make note of them if you'd like. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. That's your Torah, the first five books of the Bible that Moses recorded. Verse 98, it says your commandment, your mitzvah. That's as in bar mitzvah, meaning sons of the commandment. Those are referring to the specific commands of the Torah. Verse 99, your testimonies, your eduth, God's affirmations. Verse 100, your precepts, your pikud, the mandates of God. Verse 101, your word, your dabah, God's utterances and sayings. Verse 102, your ordinances, your mishpat, God's verdicts, his assessments of right and wrong, his judgments. Verse 103, your imrah. Another word for God's speech, what God says, particularly his authoritative word. Then verse 104, your precepts, which is repeated from verse 100, using that Hebrew word pakud, for precepts again. As I go through all those ways of describing God's word, it reminds me that God's word is amazing. It's amazing when viewed from any angle. Just as God is not only perfect in each aspect of his character, His love is perfect, his judgment is perfect, his wrath is perfect. God is also perfect in how each aspect of his character blends together and complements each other. Similarly, God's word is perfect. It doesn't have a good side and a bad side. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's sweet from any angle. And the psalmist, having expressed his love of God's word and affirmed that it is his meditation throughout the day, how does he describe the impact of that? I see it impacting the psalmist and us in three ways. It impacts what we know, particularly illustrated by verses 98 through 100. It impacts what we do, which we see in verses 101 and 102, and who we are in the last two verses, 103 and 104. What we know, what we do, and who we are. Love and meditation on God's word changes what we know. Verse 98, your commandment, your misfah, makes me wiser than my enemies. It makes me wiser than those that hate me, for it is ever with me. God's word is ever with me as I meditate on it. And meditating on God's word gives me wisdom. It gives me insight in how to apply knowledge. And what about the knowledge I have is important and what is trivial? The root for the Hebrew word for enemy is hate. And if we are in Christ, we are called to love one another despite our differences. We're even called to love our enemies. And those without the word, they thrive on conflict and destruction, not the love of the creator. And notice an important point that this verse brings out. Our love of God and his word does not provide any kind of assurance or guarantee 
that we will live a life without trouble in this world. Jesus was clear in John 16, that in this world we will have tribulation. But we take heart knowing that Jesus has overcome the world. The world does not want to submit to God's command. And just as they hate God because they want to decide what is right in their own eyes, if we follow God's commands, the world will take out its hatred on us. Jesus is a stumbling block. And following Christ faithfully will generate opposition. Following Christ is not an easy path. It's the path of the cross. It requires courage and strength to walk that we don't have within ourselves apart from God. But even in the face of enemies and opposition, God's word makes us wiser than our enemies because it helps us understand where they are coming from and gives us compassion for them rather than reflecting back and amplifying their hatred for us. Actually, we have verse 99. I have more understanding. I have better comprehension, insight, prudence than all my teachers for your testimonies, your eduth, the things God affirms, are my meditation. We don't focus ourselves on the evil of this world. Remember Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, these, these are the things that we're called to talk, to think about. And interestingly enough, those are not the things you're going to hear on the evening news. They're also they're not, not the things you're going to hear on talk radio. If we want to have better comprehension and understanding of what we learn about in the world, we need the lens of Scripture to guide our thoughts. You can know a lot, whole lot about the world, but God's Word is essential to providing understanding and meaning for it all. Next verse 100, I understand, I discern, I perceive more than the aged, the elders, for I keep your precepts, your pikud. And age brings experience. And experience can be a great teacher, but again, it takes God's word to properly interpret our experiences. They say there's no fool like an old fool, and how do we keep from becoming old and foolish? We preserve God's statutes, keeping watch over them and guarding them diligently. And here where it says, I keep your precepts, I think in terms of I obey your precepts. Now, clearly, observing God's precepts involves obeying them, but this Hebrew word we translate here also carries the meaning of guarding God's precepts. Now, why would we need to guard God's precepts? Well, God's precepts face both internal and external threats. Externally, the world opposes God, so clearly, the world wants to create an environment that rejects God's precepts. But also internally, our own sin nature would also like excuses to do the things that God tells us not to do and not to do the things that God tells us to do. So we meditate on the word to help us guard against anything internal or external that would diminish or change it. Keeping and guarding God's word goes hand in hand. If I don't actually do what God says, it's not going to be long before I no longer feel inclined to defend it. And if I fail to defend God's word against those that attack it, including my own self. It's not going to be long before I no longer feel inclined to obey it. We see this at work in our own society. For a while, even while attacking God's word, society continued to largely comply with the moral teachings of Scripture. But it hasn't taken long since our culture turned away from God's word as a basis for understanding the world around us that our culture has now decided that we get to decide what is right in our own eyes and have largely abandoned morality based in the truth and wisdom of God's word. 
If a person doesn't do God's word, it won't be long before that person doesn't care to know God's word. And if a person doesn't care to know God's word, it's not going to be long before they believe they can decide what is right or wrong on their own without any outside interference from God. And while deciding what is right in our own eyes can be tempting, like most temptations, the problem is usually discovered only after it takes us further than we wanted to go, keeps us there longer than we wanted to stay, and costs us more than we wanted to pay. When we abandon God's judgments and decide right and wrong on our own, it doesn't end conflicts between people. It makes those conflicts worse. And when God's word is rejected, there's no longer an objective truth that mediates between opposing views. So when you reject the truth of God's word, what you get instead is morality dictated by who holds power. Power becomes the final arbiter of what is right and wrong. And instead of God's wisdom, we are governed by the capricious dictates of who holds the upper hand at any given time. Now here the psalmist transitions in verse 100 from what it means to know God's word and now addresses doing God's word, what it means to walk in obedience to it. Verse 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me. And just as it matters what we know, it matters what we do, as we've been saying. Who we are, what we know, and what we do all work together in defining us. We've all probably known someone really smart that mainly used what they knew to avoid doing anything as much as possible. Those type of folks aren't very useful to anybody. Other people, they know a lot, and they're energetic about doing things. But who they are, their character, is so flawed that they use their knowledge and drive to do selfish, evil things. Most of us try to stay away from guys like that. But here in verse 8, in these eight verses, we see how the knowledge of God applied to good effect in what we know, what we do, and who we are changes an individual who all of us want to be a neighbor of. Now, verse 101 seemed kind of strange to me as I meditated on it this week. Meditated on it this week. I hope you caught that. Uh, I would normally say, in order to keep God's word, I hold myself back from evil pursuits. But we read instead, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Here's how that speaks to me. You you might remember from last week's sermon, that illustration from Pilgrim's Progress, where God's way was marked with hardship and suffering, so Pilgrim and his companion, hopeful, they took the easier way to bypass Meadow, and that led them to Doubting Castle and the giant despair. Any way that is not God's way is an evil way. So why would I choose an easier path than what God has provided? Well, the answer to that is pretty easy because I'm a sinful, selfish creature. I don't seek God's glory first naturally. In seeking to obey God's word, I have to challenge my motivation. It isn't a matter of just keeping my hands clean while pursuing my own agenda. It's a matter of pursuing God's agenda while at the same time keeping my hand clean is doing it, holding myself back from evil pursuits in order to keep God's word. And verse 102 affirms the importance of walking in obedience with God's rules. What God calls right, we call right. What God calls wrong, we call wrong. Why do we do that? Because, these are amazing words, because you have taught me. What an amazing truth you see in those just few words there. We're sinners lost in sin. And our creator, this indescribably glorious being that has brought all things into existence 
and holds them together moment by moment, sustaining it by everything by his power, that eternal being has always been and always will be, loves each of us enough to call us by name, to teach us through his spirit and his word. Do you love God enough that you obey his word, not because disobedience may bring adverse consequences, but just because you appreciate what he has done for you? Are you willing to walk the hard path, not because it's easy, not because it's filled with rewards, but because if God has called you to it, that calling makes it important for you to walk in it. As we get to the last two verses, we see how knowing God's word and obeying God's word has transformed who the psalmist is. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. The words of Moses, God's word, were not sweet to the taste of Pharaoh. God's word is not sweet to the world's taste. 1 Corinthians 2.14 teaches clearly the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 1.18 is similar. It tells us the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And those are pretty sweet words. God's word proclaims the eternity-changing power of God's gospel truth, fully sufficient for every need. Romans 12.9 tells us that love must be sincere. So if God's word is not sweet to you, don't fake it. Come before God. Ask him to transform your thinking. Consider what you have or are developing a taste for and choose to walk in God's truth instead. Romans 12.9 goes on to say, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. With the sincere love of God comes hatred of evil. If we will not conform ourselves to the world, but let God transform us through renewal of our minds, then we will properly discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thanks for bearing with me this morning as we have considered God's word together. Amen.